morning, everyone. You probably already can hear that I've woken up with a cold, uh, so I'm a little bit unwell. I'm blaming that on being <coughs> a bit physically drained because I went to Fraser Island for my first time for the last few days, which is a cool place. Uh, but I was told that it would be a good idea to swim across Lake Mackenzie and back. I don't know how far that is, but I'm pretty sure I crossed the time zone. Um, as I turned to come back, I caught a glimpse of Ayers Rock. Uh, anyway, it was a long way, and uh, it was a good swim, but anyway, so I feel like that must have contributed to me uh, having a struggle with my voice this morning, but it's okay, we will get there. <coughs> All right, I want you to use your imaginations for just a minute. Let's pretend that you received a phone call, or perhaps a letter carried through a horse and carriage, to inform you that you had been personally chosen by King Charles to be adopted into the royal family. We're pretending this is a good thing. Um, now, what this in fact means for you is that all of the wealth of the royal family, all of the land holdings will be yours. All of the power and privilege will be yours. Access to the king will be yours. Now, it's immediately binding. However, all of the privileges won't kick into place for five years. But in five years, guaranteed, all the paperwork's done, it's all signed, legally binding. In five years' time, the full privileges kick into gear. Now, for the next five years, you're not going to live life differently at all, are you? It's going to go on like everything's exactly the same until one night after a perfect night's sleep, you wake up and all of that power of prestige and privilege is yours. No, that's ridiculous. You're going to think about, you're going to live in expectation of the change that's coming. Your life is going to be geared around this thing that is rapidly approaching in five years' time. Firstly, if you're like me, and the royals don't mean much, and I seriously, I probably know two of their names, uh, it's not something I'm into, but firstly, I'm going to start to research. I'm going to start to figure out who's who, right? Like, I'm about to be a part of this thing. I want to know what's going on, so I'm going to start to understand who they are. I want to know what they do. What are the functions they actually carry out? What's their day-to-day -day lives look like? Because I'm about to be a part of this. How many palaces do they own? Where am I going to get to live? Right? These are all questions that I'm actually going to begin to figure out. What are the expectations on me? How am I supposed to behave? How am I supposed to dress? What am I supposed to look like? Aren't these questions that we actually... Surely my wife is not the only one who's going to an event or function and will actually ring or message other women to say, what are you wearing? Do you think this is too dressy or this is not too dressy? And they spend quite a while working out with it. Is this... It's only you, Beth. Um, no, right? Everyone does it. Everyone feels this pressure, like, what's, what's the appropriate level? What is it I'm supposed to do? How much more so if I've been adopted into the royal family? Right? This is what we've got to think about. What is the etiquette? Do I need to speak differently? Do I have to learn to wave like this? Right? How do I behave in public? William versus Harry. Um, we've probably got different ideas about what all of this means. 
but I want you to get the picture. Your status as a member of the royal family would definitely begin to uh, change your attitudes, your behaviours, your thinking now. It kicks into gear in five years, but your whole life is going to begin to revolve around the fact that in five years' time, you are going to be in a completely different place. Not only that, I'm pretty sure this struggle that I, I was talking about of trying to understand, trying to know, trying to research, I'm pretty sure they're not going to leave me alone in that either. I mean, seriously, look at me. They're not going to be like, yep, that bogan in five years' time, boom, he's a royal. They're actually going to spend time teaching me, telling me, training me, telling me what I need to do and what has to happen. Of course, I'm talking about this for a reason. Thus far in our series through 1 Peter, he has been at pains to paint for you the reality, the guarantee of your adoption into the family of God. That is more or less what he has spent the first 12 verses doing. He's grounded you in the truth that you are chosen by God and you are chosen by the plan of the ages, that the prophets long to see what you now have. The angels long to catch a glimpse of your eternal salvation, one through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The fact that by grace, through Jesus paying the penalty of your sin, your salvation is guaranteed and you will behold Christ face to face, and in an instant you will be made like him, holy, perfected, to partake in his eternal glory as a member of his family forevermore. In short, Peter has been trying to say to you, if you're a Christian this morning, ground this in your mind, ground this deeply in your brain, the King of kings and Lord of lords has chosen you to be in his family forevermore. Amen. Come on. Now, this is what Peter wants you to wrestle with and grasp and, and take hold of. So he's been putting that in your mind. He's been trying to make it so you can't have doubt, you can't have insecurities. You know for sure that this is happening. This morning, we're going to shift slightly. Because what Peter is saying to us this morning is, I have grounded you in the eternal reality of your adoption into the royal family of God. And now knowing that to be true, knowing the glorious future that awaits, should that not in fact impact how you live now? As you live in expectation of that glory that lies ahead, will that not in fact impact how you live today? Right? That is where Peter is taking us on this journey. So listen up as we read our passage and hear how Peter shifts from this is who you are and what you have, a child of God, into how that now makes you live. All right? 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, if you have your Bible with you. 1 Peter 1, 13 through to 16. Therefore, 
with your minds ready for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Amen. So our passage begins, therefore, and therefore always means this is a response. This is in relation to what has come before in our passage. Because of everything you've just heard, therefore. So what is the therefore that Peter is referring to? And in fact, it's all of the first 12 verses. Everything that Peter has just covered about our eternal salvation about the fact that we are saved by Christ through his death and resurrection. And Peter says, therefore, because of grace, because you were saved, because you were adopted into the family of God, therefore, right? This is what Peter wants to tell us. Now, this is super important. This is not arbitrary. Peter wanted to ground us in grace, Ground us in the fact that we are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus alone before he gets to the doing, before he gets to how we change, before he gets to how we must grow, before he gets to how we must think, before he gets to whatever it is we might do, he's first grounded us in the reality that your salvation is through Christ. You don't become a Christian by stopping stealing. You don't become a Christian by not getting drunk. You don't become a Christian by not sleeping around. That's not how you become a Christian. You become a Christian by dying to your old life. It's not giving up your sins that makes you a Christian. It's giving up your rule. And as you surrender to Christ, then you'll begin to change how you live. And Peter's wanted to make that clear. So he's grounded us in the reality of grace, that you were chosen, that Christ paid the penalty of your sin. He's grounded you in the fact you cannot earn your own salvation. And hence you have been grounded. He now says, therefore. You've been saved by grace. Now what does that mean in how you live tomorrow? Right? That is what Peter is saying. Now, I don't want to go into details about this, but remember, we're working across languages here, and so we have a main verb and instrumental participles. Um, It just means that, let me just explain how that first verse works, right? In short, this means, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? How do we do that? By preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So that looks slightly different from how you've read that, but like I said, in Greek, we've got present and future part. So that's what it means, right? Set your hope fully on the grace that he's just been talking about. How? How do you actually set your mind on the hope that we have in Christ by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded? So the first one, what does it mean to have your minds ready for action? Well, literally, if you read this in Greek, it says to gird up the loins of your mind. Is that now abundantly clear to you what that means? Everybody, gird up the loins of your mind. All right, I've even got a slide to help you. 
This is literally how you girded up your loins. This is what it meant. So men and women had long, flowy skirts, except the men wore men's skirts, of course. Um, and this is what they wore. And so to gird up your loins meant this. It was very hard to go into battle when you had a full-length skirt or man-dress thing on, right? So it was very difficult to move, maneuver, if that's what you were wearing. Uh, and so they had to come up with a system of how you altered that to enable you to do hard work, physical activity, or indeed go into battle. And so they came up with a system of girding up your loins. And right there is an illustration of what that meant. It was a particular way of folding up your thing so that it became a pair of shorts, more or less, and you were free then, prepared, ready to go into battle. Now, I don't know, there's probably some of the women in this room that would know how to do that with a skirt, maybe. Got to do some gardening, just gird up my loins. Um, I don't know how that works, but that's literally what they did. So in essence, it meant to get ready to prepare yourself for battle or some kind of strenuous physical exertion. So what is Peter saying? He is saying, in order to set your hope on everything that we've looked at in 1 to 12, in order to set your hope on the promises of grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you must prepare your mind for battle. You must prepare your mind, get it ready for some serious fighting. You have to get your mind ready for serious activity. You must discipline your mind. You must gird up your mind for battle. In other words, if you come to church once a week, maybe less, maybe a lot less, you don't read the Bible, you don't pray, you don't spend your time meditating on Christ, then you are not girding up the loins of your mind. You are not preparing your mind for battle to honor Christ, to fix on the promise that he's given you, and you will not be prepared to set your hope on God. Chances are, if you are not girding up the loins of your mind, you'll end up setting your hope on your bank balance. You'll end up setting your hope on your popularity. You'll end up setting your hope on your successes, which are all temporary and can be lost in, a, in an instant. Peter is saying, I've explained to you your adoption into the family of God by grace. I've explained to you everything you have in Christ. Now gird up the loins of your mind. Study it. Focus on it. Dwell on it. Spend time reading the Bible. Read theology. Spend time with brothers and sisters who will challenge you, rebuke you, encourage you, equip you. Get your mind ready like this is a fight and I'm fighting to focus my mind on Christ for his glory forevermore and it doesn't happen by coasting. It happens by work and preparation. Put in the effort is what Peter is saying. So he's given us 12 verses of grace, grounded in the truth that you're saved by grace, not by works. And he says, now, because of your grace, because you're saved by Christ, work. Put in the effort. Get to know God. Set your mind on the hope. Secondly, be sober-minded. Now, directly, literally, this does mean 
don't be drunk-minded. That's literally how that reads. But the application, of course, is far wider than being drunk. Peter is saying, like a person who is drunk does not think clearly, their mind becomes muddled. Their ability to reason becomes impaired. Peter is saying Christians can be like that without alcohol. He's saying be sober-minded. He's saying when you don't gird up the loins of your mind, when you are not prepared, you are not disciplined, you are not focused on the things of God, you become drunk on the things of the world, is what Peter is saying. Your mind becomes muddled by comfort, by Instagram or TikTok endorphins. Oh my goodness, how many people like my post? I suddenly feel good. And Peter's saying that's drunk on the things of the world. You're muddled into thinking that people liking your stupid post equals good, right? This is the muddled of the world that Peter is talking about. You're not sober-minded. You're drunk on the things of the world. People can do it in business. People can do it by appearing to be the perfect family. You just want everyone to know we're perfect. Peter is saying all of these things drunk on the things of the world. No, says Peter, be sober-minded. Be fixed on discipline. Be fixed on the word of God. Be fixed on the expectations of Christ. Be fixed on his glory. And attune your mind to the things that matter. Think clearly about the world by putting Christ first. And suddenly all of those other things become way clearer, don't they? If I'm not living for the expectations of people, but I'm living for Christ, then suddenly I'm thinking clearly and I'm no longer muddled by the things of the world. Right? This is what Peter says. You want to set your mind on the hope of verses 1 to 12? How do I do it? By disciplining my mind and thinking clearly about the things of the world. Amen? Right? This is, it's an action. It takes work. Right? This is now the response to grace. We're living in light of our adoption into the royal family. Secondly, in verse 14 of our passage, he says, setting our mind as obedient children. Right? As obedient children. Here is your adoption into the royal family. As obedient children. Who's obedient children? God's. He bought you by the blood of Jesus and adopted you into the family of God. I don't know what your earthly father was like. Maybe a good example, maybe a terrible example. What I do know is your heavenly father is perfect and he chose you and he paid for your sins by the blood of his only son. He made you righteous and he will bring you home. This is the promise of verses 1 to 12. And so, in lieu, in light of our perfect Father, we want to live as obedient children. Like I said, everything that Peter's written before this point, all those profound truths, he says, fix your mind on how amazing your Father is and live as his obedient child. What does it look like? What does it mean? It's really easy to understand, isn't it? Live as obedient children. Do what our Heavenly Father tells us. Much harder to put into practice. 
much harder to not be conformed anymore to the desires of our former ignorance, which is what our passage tells us. Right? Being obedient to God means desire, um, it means turning away from the desires of our former ignorance. Now this is, again is one of the indicators, as we've said, in setting up the letter of Peter. He's writing to a Gentile audience. And this is one of those indicators, right? When he's talking about your former ignorance, he's, that's usually a way of speaking about the Gentile mind. So he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. You lived in ignorance. You lived in the ways of the world. You no longer conform yourselves to them, but as a child obedient to his father who's adopted him, you begin to live according to the desires of your father. The Christian life church is not a passive one. You can't just meander along on the hope of that sinner's prayer that you prayed 10 years ago. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to be saved by grace, saved by the grace of our Father, and now live in obedience to him, actively disciplining our minds, actively being sober-minded, actively turning away from the world in its desires. One of those painful things as a parent, but really instructive, I think, particularly when you're watching somebody else trying to parent, because um, we've all been there, is when you're watching that two- to three-year-old and you're watching that parent say no to them. Like, let's say it was, don't touch this pulpit. And you literally watch them going. And the parent's going, don't. The thing about it that I love is they haven't yet learned to mask their desire to touch that thing. It's there. We can all see. Every parent is just like, no. Because you can just see it's open desire. I want to touch it. Partly because I want to and partly because you're telling me not to. Right? And you can just read it on their face. It's there for everyone to see. The truth is, you and I as adults are absolutely no different. God says no. And we're good at covering the strain in our own heart and face, which says yes. And Peter says, as obedient children, take up your cross and deny the old ways of thinking. The reality is the Holy Spirit is within you, working to conform you to the image of Jesus, and your old nature is still there, still trying to reach out and conform you to the image of the world and its desires. Think about it. How many pressures from the world come upon you every day to be shaped by it and its desires? Why do we wear what we wear? What does our place of employment tell us about how we should function and how the world functions? What do our goals for the future say about how we think about the world? What makes us feel secure and at peace? Where do we give our time and our energy? What is the entertainment that we consume? And Peter says, don't be conformed to the world. Discipline your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And as obedient children, focus on the things of God. It's an active work. An active pursuit of setting your hope on the promises of 1 to 12. Verse 16. But as God is holy, 
be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now the first thing to note in this passage is God's effectual calling. But as God is holy, be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy for I am holy. God called people out of darkness into light. It's not an invitation. It's the same power and calling of God here that called Lazarus out of the tomb from death to life. It's God's work, God's calling. And this is our response to that calling, right? This is what this is saying. If we claim Christ but continue to walk in the darkness, if we continue to love the darkness, then we've never heard the call of God to come into the light. Going to church will not save you. Only if you've heard the call to repent and believe. Now what does this call to holiness mean? Holiness means otherness. It means to be set apart. God's holiness is his otherness, his uniqueness. In other words, God's love is a holy love. It is so much greater. It is so much more profound. It is so much more sacrificial that we can say God's love is a holy love. It's other. It's set apart. We could say God's justice is a holy justice. It's so great. It's so profound that God could simply not forgive your sins, but justice demanded penalty be paid. And Jesus died in your place because God is holy justice and he required the penalty and he paid it himself. God's anger is a holy anger. It is more fearsome, more raging, more right than any anger we can ever experience. God is holy. He is other. And you are to be holy as God is holy. What does that mean for you and me? Well, it means we are to be set apart. It means we are to be different than the people around us. That meant we're meant to physically separate ourselves into Christian bubbles and avoid those annoying non-Christians out there in the world. No, of course not. It doesn't mean that at all. Jesus said he was leaving us in the world with a mission to get to know non-Christians, to love them, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is a hope and there is adoption into his family. We are meant to be in the world, friends with people in the world, loving them, connected to them. Whether or not they ever put their faith in Jesus, we should still commit to them in genuine love. But as we do so, says Peter, we are to live holy lives set apart for the glory of God. In other words, although we live among the people, although we love the people, our lives will look different because we are not conforming to the world and its desires. We are obedient children. So we're in the world, but we look different to the world. What does Peter say this applies to? How is it we look different? Peter says you are to be holy in all of your conduct. Oh, don't you hate absolutes like that? You are to be holy 
in all of your conduct. Sam, except for how you treat your family. Right? Is that in parenthesis for me? Just take it easy there. Or, you know, and let, except for when you're at work, then you're allowed to not be holy. No. Be holy in all of your conduct. This means in every single part of your life. When you're at work, when you're at home, the way you look after your children, the way husbands treat their wives, the way wives treat their husbands, the way you as an employer treat your employees, be holy in all of your conduct. Your conduct at work, your conduct at home is meant to have no difference than your conduct here on a Sunday morning. They are meant to be identical. Because if your conduct is different here on a Sunday morning than what it is through the week, then you are trying to mock God. You are acting like our holiness is a performance for man. And God says, no, be holy as I am holy. Right? It's not a performance. It's a response to the grace of God who saves you. How do you treat people who have less power than you do? How do you treat people who have less authority than you do? How do you treat people who know less than you do? How do you treat people who have less experience than you do? How do you treat people who are vulnerable around you? And God says, be holy as I am holy. This is how you'll know whether or not you've set your hope on glory or you've been conformed by the world and its desires. Peter finishes our passage with an Old Testament quote. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. Now, it's literally impossible to know which verse he is quoting from because there are just so many options in the Old Testament. So here's one for you. I've just written one out to, to quote for you. Leviticus 19.2. Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. There's a lot of these verses. Like I said, we don't know which one Peter is quoting. Now, part of the reason Israel was to be holy, set apart, was so that they could be a light to the nations. They would stand out from their honouring of God. But here's what I want you to know, church. Here's what I want us to own deeply together this morning. Our primary reason for being holy is not to be a light to this community. Our primary reason for being holy is not missional. Our primary reason for being holy is not the people out there. Our primary reason for being holy is because God is holy and he says, be holy because I am holy. God says, you are adopted into my family and I've told you how to live, set yourself apart because I am set apart. It's really important. Because if it's about people out there, then we can go out on mission and we can put on a show, can't we? 
We can go out in the street and we can be so Christian. Man, I can help every old lady across the road and I can go and tell good news to everyone who wants to hear it and then I can go home and I can be an absolute jerk to my wife. Oh, because I'm on mission out there and I'm on a show out there, but at home, no, whatever. And God says, no, be holy because I am holy. Where do I need to be holy? In all of your conduct. All of your conduct. Why? Because it's not about the mission, it's about who God is and he's adopted you into his family and he says, be holy as I am holy. Where are you failing? To honour God as holy. Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it on the sporting field? Is it how you treat your children? Is it how you treat your husband? Is it how you treat your wife? Is it how you treat your friends? Is it how you speak online in hidden chat rooms? Is it what you look at when no one's around and God says, be holy in all of your conduct? Why? Because I am There's no out as obedient children. Honour God. What do we do? If we have not been living up to that expectation, what do we do? Repent and ask forgiveness. Now what does repent mean? Repent means to turn away from, to change our behaviour But church, it's not a magical word. I don't say, I repent, and then suddenly everything's like, it never happened, it's all just wonderful. No. Repentance means I get an accountability partner. Repentance means I work with a brother or sister, and I openly confess my sin, and they walk with me, and we walk together, and I repent, and I fight, and I do what has to be done to be an obedient child, to honour God as holy, until I have victory over that thing. That's repentance. Right? It's the ongoing fight to turn away from the world and its desires and to be holy as God is holy. That's repentance. Remember, Peter started with grace, very intense. Verses 1 to 12, he says, you are chosen, you are chosen by grace, your sins are paid for by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are guaranteed salvation by the rock of Christ, you will dwell in an undefiled, perfect, eternal dwelling forevermore. And Peter says, now that you have grasped that truth, now you know it's real, be holy, because God is holy. And so we train our minds. We stay sober-minded, focused on the things of God as we deny the world and its desires. We live holy lives set apart for the hope we have in Jesus, which gives us the strength to stand and withstand the attacks of the enemy. As children adopted into the family of God, our whole lives, each and every part, is set apart for his glory. How I treat my wife, how I treat my husband, how I work for my employer, how I treat my employees, all of these things are set apart for the glory of God as you are holy, as he is holy. Ground yourself in grace. Discipline and train yourself to live in light of that. 
Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have paid the penalty of our sins. <coughs> we thank you that we are adopted into your family by the sacrifice of Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, the penalty has been paid and Christ could declare it is finished. Lord, because of that truth, because it's not about us, because it's about you, it gives us the strength knowing our eternal future is guaranteed to fight, to keep going, to fight for holiness, to, to say no to the word, world, to discipline ourselves. Lord, maybe not be a people who just try to coast on events past, coast on a time we have with Jesus in the past. Maybe we be a people who fight to behold you now, to train ourselves, to grow in knowledge of Christ. Lord, we commit ourselves to in your precious name.